Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bodies that haunt Hollywood and try to find out why they went to their graves. This week, when you're alone and life is making you lonely, you can always go to the movie theater. Unfortunately, nobody did. This is Last Night in Soho. <laughs> this is a tale of horror and blood. Let's go! Stop it! <laughs> welcome, welcome, welcome to the Blast Zone. Welcome to the Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Shutter account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a demon with horns and bat wings and summonings about movies. Movies like Last Night in Soho, which we're talking about today. But before we get into that, Ian, how are you doing this week? On the one hand, I feel good that I made it halfway through Blastober without dying of fright. Mm -hmm. But then I looked and I realized this was the easy half. Two movies. I already knew them. I already loved them. Watch out. By the end of the month, you might be co-hosting with the skeleton. Next couple movies after today are going to strip the flesh from my bones. That would be spooky, co-hosting with a skeleton. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. Also, I feel like it'd be hard for you to type and stuff with no skin on your fingers. And I'm not sure if my trackpad will even work. I got some adjusting to do, but we're going to keep plowing ahead. I'm excited. I'm going to a concert tomorrow for one of my favorite bands. Oh, cool. Going to see the Gaslight Anthem in New Jersey, which if you're a Gaslight Anthem fan, that's a big deal because they're Jersey boys. Uh, oh, Bruce, okay. Bruce passed the torch to them many years ago, oh. Stone Pony, and uh, heralded them like the new kings of New Jersey. So wow. I've never seen the band. I've seen the lead singer in New Jersey at the Stone Pony, Brian Fallon, but I've never seen the band in Jersey. It's not at the Stone Pony, though. They're too famous for that now. It's a, okay. But by the time you hear this, it will have already happened. So if you're going to try to find me there, tough luck. That was last week, stupid. That sounds fun. <laughs> Concerts are, are kind of a new thing. I hadn't gone to one for like two years before COVID. So we're going on four or five years by now since I've been to a real concert. It's a whole new world again. Even longer longer for you, right? You said you haven't been to a concert in quite a while now. It's been a little while. I can't even recall. Was it in 1960s London? It was. I met a girl named Sandy there. Well, you're still alive, so you must have been nice to her. Spoiler <laughs> alert. But uh, before we start talking too much about last night and so high, we got to talk about some other stuff we watched this week. So what do you got for us? Well, I'm going to have to do a callback to last week because about the only thing that I spent any time watching this week was last year's Netflix series called Midnight Mass. Mentioned it just for a minute on last week's show because it was created and directed by Dr. Sleeps Mike Flanagan. I don't know if you've seen this on Netflix now. They tag his stuff with a little Flaniverse icon. Oh, I they like dubbed that. his work the Flaniverse. He's a big man on campus over there at Netflix. Midnight Mass is a fun premise. It's this New Englandy slow burn character focused horror thing, which means it's pretty Stephen Kingy, as we know that there's quite an affinity between Flanagan and King. And uh, mm -hmm. it's got a lot more quiet monologues than shocking horror moments, but it does have a really fun, cool horror concept at the center of it, which is keeping me hooked. And I'm into it. I'm three and a half episodes in. See how it turns out. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because Flanagan had another project drop today with Netflix, The Midnight Club, not The Midnight Mass, different series. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if they're interconnected in any way, but that just released today. And I just saw a tweet from him literally before we got into the studio. He was asking people like, hey, when you log on to Netflix, do you see The Midnight Club or do you have to search for it? So it sounds like there's a little bit of algorithm shenanigans at play with this new series. And I hope that mm. they're not giving him the short shrift because that would be a tragedy. He seems like one of their biggest collaborators. I mean, I assumed he was an Algorithm King, and that's why they brought him into the fold, because you got to think that the stuff he produces must be lighting up their users, or they wouldn't keep re-upping him for one project after another. Exactly. I assume it's like, there was like a weird split between West Coast and East Coast people. People on the West Coast were like, uh -huh. oh no, I see it. People on the East Coast were having a little bit of a harder time finding it, so it might have just been like a time zone slip up. Hopefully that's the case, and they're not trying to drive his asking price down by saying, no. oh, not too many people watched it. Oh yeah, that would suck if this was like, oh, by the way, this is the beginning of the end for you, and this is how you find out. I mean, the new season of Barry taught me a lot about how these things work with placement mm. on the homepage of a streaming service. And if it doesn't pop off in 24 hours, you're pretty much dead in the water. We're pulling for you, Mike. We're big fans. For sure. I've had a hard time finding time to watch movies for enjoyment lately. That's not because I'm super busy, because I'm not. It's because I get sucked into shows oh. and I can't pull myself out of them. And some of them are shows that are like new and topical and fun to talk about. Sure. But this is a show that I feel like has been discoursed to death and beyond and back to life and death 
dead again. So I was hesitant to bring it, but I'm rewatching Game of Thrones like from the oh. beginning. And I'm almost through season six. I've been watching it for about a month now. Pretty much when House of the Dragon started, I was like, I'm going to need a refresher, even though I was a big fan of those books. I yeah. haven't done much with it in a long time. And man, those first like five seasons of Game of Thrones are so good. They still hold up really well. But then I'm in season six now and I'm seeing the seam starting to show. I know yeah. season seven is when the real quality drop off happens, but man, there really is some distressing signs. Characters just tend to do things now, like late in the show. You don't really understand why. And you're like, maybe they'll explain that later. But then I'm like, wait a second. No, there's like 10 episodes of the show left. They're not going to explain it later. This is just what <laughs> we're getting now. I thought because the first seasons were so good, I was like, maybe we just had too high expectations for how this all was going to wrap up. But no, like the drop in quality is steep. <laughs> I, that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to rewatch it was to be like, were we a little unfair to Game of Thrones? And the answer is no. Okay. And I'm not even up to the final season yet, which everyone agrees is the obvious low point of the series. It's funny. On one hand, it's kind of amazing that you could even do one season of good TV. Like it's so much work. But then Benioff and Weiss were on a track where like these guys know what they're doing. And then sometimes things fall off. And you could obviously point the finger at when they ran out of source material from George R. R. Martin is when the quality went down. But I don't know. I have questions about Benioff and Weiss's. Is it too mean to say talent? I just don't know without a real strict roadmap if these guys could make a show compelling for seven seasons. We got one example and they didn't, but there's no reason not to be happy with the good stuff that they did give us. Because like you said, there's still a lot of joy to get out of that TV show. Yeah. And that they keep having projects fall through. So I feel like we just haven't seen anything from them since Thrones. Yeah. It's hard to judge. But that's enough on a long finished TV series. Let's talk about Last Night in Soho, Ian. I know this movie came out when we were already doing the podcast. So we talked about it on air. Yeah. You brought it to show and tell one week. You love this movie. You love Edgar Wright. Give us like a quick summary of your feelings on this movie and how your journey with it went. I remember hearing that it was coming and it was at a point where I had established for myself that I was an Edgar Wright fan. We had covered Scott Pilgrim on the show and that caused me to reflect on his body work. And I was so excited. The new Edgar Wright movie was coming out. And really importantly for me, I managed to know nothing about this movie by the time I got to watch it, which is, I would say, if you can, is the way to go. And this is a good moment in the podcast to say, spoiler alert, this movie is like super spoilable. If you haven't watched it and you have some interest, please watch it. It's so good when you don't know what it is because it's something really different. Anyway, I didn't know what it was. I watched it. I was totally enchanted by it. And I still am. I'm even more thrilled with it, I think, than I was. And one of the notes that I'll make about rewatching this movie, this movie has so many lines that are loaded with extra meaning and double entendres that you don't get until you do multiple watches. Some of them it calls out within the text of the movie itself. And some of them it lets hang there for you to catch next time. It's a really fun movie. And I still love it very much. There is a scene which felt very like old school Jalo, where Eloise is standing on the street corner and the camera is spinning around her and just like lines that have more meaning than we originally realized are playing in her head. And I was like, uh -huh. all right, the movie is holding our hands a little bit here, but you're right. Like yeah. there are a lot of other lines that have some hidden context once you finally figure out what's really going on. It's but, packed with stuff, which is Edgar Wright's thing. He is a really intensely detailed filmmaker and he puts a lot into this. That's the word I was going to use. Attention to detail is his thing. And also, even though this is well outside of his wheelhouse in terms of genre and mood, the heavy use of period appropriate music kind of spells out that this is an Edgar Wright movie uh -huh. uh, from the first minute. It might not be the type of movie he usually makes, but it's the type of movie he always makes, if that makes any sense at all. His movies are musicals to a certain extent, and this movie is no exception. Do you want me to get into a little bit of the making of the movie? Yeah, for sure. Let's hear how this thing happened. All right. In 2013, Edgar Wright was gearing up to begin filming what would be the least heralded entry in his Cornetto trilogy, the sci-fi bar crawl dramedy The World's End, when he pitched an idea for a movie he had originally conceived of back in 2007, centered around 1960s London and the darkness lurking there, particularly how the evil of men was allowed to fester and how it impacted the women beholden to them. Wright had made all manner of comedies by then, relationship comedies, zombie comedies, buddy cop comedies, video game romantic comedies, and the aforementioned sci-fi comedy, but this was going to be his first foray into psychological horror. Edgar Wright doing a not comedy? He's gotta be not joking. Wright hired award-winning casting director and researcher Lucy Party to interview people who'd lived and worked in the area during the mid to late 1960s, where part of the movie was going to be set. The rest of the movie would be set inside of a mirror. Filmmaker Sam Mendes introduced Wright to Christy Wilson Carnes, who got her start writing for Showtime series Penny Dreadful and would later co-write 1917 with Mendes, and she and Wright hit it off. Wilson Carnes shared that she had worked as a bartender at the Toucan in Soho for 
for five years, and on the night of the Brexit vote, her and Wright did an impromptu bar crawl through the basement bars of Soho. At the end of the night, Wright pitched her the idea for Last Night in Soho, and the two decided to work together on writing the movie. First, Wright would have to make Baby Driver, which would go on to be the biggest hit of his career. Finally, at least he wouldn't be under pressure from the studio. He was under pressure from the studio to start work on a sequel pretty much immediately. Instead, he followed up with Wilson Carnes and got to work on Last Night in Soho instead. They rented an office in Soho and started working on the script. With the screenplay done and a $40 million budget secured, casting was underway. Thomas and McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy were cast in the dual leads of Eloise and Sandy, with Matt Smith, Diana Rigg, Terrence Stamp, Cineve Carlson, and Michael Aggio filling out the rest of the cast. Filming began in May of 2019 throughout London and finished on August 30th of the same year, with reshoots happening in the summer of 2020 at Pinewood Studios. The film would be delayed several times due to the COVID-19 pandemic, eventually releasing on October 29th, 2021, just in time for Halloween. That's almost the last night in spooky season. Reviews were largely positive as the movie sits at 76% on Rotten Tomatoes, but audiences could not be bothered to head to the theater and the movie flopped hard, opening in seventh place with $4.1 million despite being placed in over 3,000 screens. It would leave theaters with only $23 million in worldwide gross and has yet to develop the kind of cult fandom we've seen cultivate with past flops, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Then again, it is still early. It's a long night in Soho, folks. Give it time. Some shit's still going to happen. Mm-hmm. That seems weird, though. Like, why did it just... Nobody liked it? Nobody wanted to see it? No People one liked it. it. I don't get it. You know what? It's a hard movie to kind of get your head around just from a poster or a trailer. There's, like you said, it's very spoilable, so it has to keep its cards close to its chest. So it's just a lot of, like, flashing lights and spooky imagery and eerie downtown playing in the background in a minor key. <laughs> so you don't know anything about it just from the marketing, and that's how you have to market a movie like this. But we think of Edgar Wright as, like, a guy will go see a movie because he's attached to it. But is he that to the general film going public? No, I don't think so. Not. Obviously, we learned with Scott Pilgrim. You know, <laughs> Yeah, we had to cover him before on here with a movie that I think is an absolute masterpiece, Scott Pilgrim. This movie is it's not as transcendent on all levels, but it's pretty fucking good, man. And it, to me, it's so special because it's original. And maybe that's part of its downfall. Like you can't say, oh, it's this, it's that. I know what it is. Hollywood doesn't put out that many big, incredibly craftily constructed movies that are pure original content, like just a made up story that he got the idea for. And he just executed it so beautifully, I think. But yeah, people didn't know what to make of it. He's clearly pulling from the giallo genre, but that's not like a genre that has any large resonance in Hollywood. That's an Italian genre. It has never really lit up the box office here. We've talked about Malignant, which is also clearly an homage to that, which was another flop. There was a Suspiria remake that flopped hard. His influences for this movie were not hits. So you can't draw a direct line. Like he's referencing this movie that everyone loved. Like he's referencing this movie that 80 five people in America saw and adored, but that's not going to move the needle really. It's too bad. It is. It's a, it's a bold, adventurous movie and it's really well acted and it's well written. Do you think that it's just too soon for it to have developed a cult following yet? Or is it a situation where it's just not going to happen for it? I wonder, because I started to look around the internet and I poked around at other podcasts who had talked about it and I read reviews and I found really some mixed bag of impressions on this. Now, the aggregator scores look pretty good on this, right? But I was just surprised how many people got on podcasts and just vocally expressed their disappointment with this movie. And it's like, who are you? (laughs) What did you need this movie to be? But then again, I think we found that with Scott Pilgrim too, that we're like, this is obviously one of the best movies ever. So anybody who actually spends the time to watch it must acknowledge that. And then we're like, no, a lot of people hate this movie and still talk shit about it. Well, Scott Pilgrim was interesting because I think most critics really liked it at first, but then there was a bit of backlash years following when it started really getting popular. Mm. And I think most of that was centered on the fact that Scott as a character is kind of like an asshole, but I don't think the movie, yeah. I don't think the movie is trying to hide from that either. Like, I think it understands no. that. And to your point about this movie, Rotten Tomato scores are a terrible way to judge a movie's reception. We have to use it because it's kind of a quick shorthand. It's a way to kind of just express the general consensus. But a lot of critics that we both like and respect were pretty down on this movie. So that number, there's a million critics out there and this was a big release. So it got reviewed by all of them. Yeah. So that number's kind of loaded with, not to disparage anybody, but David Sims, one of our favorite writers on film, gets the same weight as like some guy writing for a random newspaper in Wisconsin. So those scores aren't, but like David Sims didn't like this movie. I, so, know, I was going to say, yeah, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't agree with us on this one. He was like, it's slight. It's all flash and no substance. So I'm like, what does that mean in this context? Adam Naiman too. He didn't write a full review of it, but I read some of his notes from TIFF when he first saw it. Uh-huh. He was pretty down on it too. And they both have a much wider range of references to pull from than we do. And maybe sure. this movie is cribbing from things 
things that they're more familiar with. So it's less enchanting to them is the best way I can kind of, and just taste is subjective, obviously. So it's never going to be a real across the board agreement. Well, we get to spend the next 45 minutes here talking about it, saying what we liked. And there's a few things that we might point out that we didn't think worked that great, but man, it's such a cool movie. I'm really glad we get to talk about it. Cool is a good word for it. The visuals, the music, the camera tricks he employs. It's a very cool movie and I'm excited to dig into it because I don't think a lot of people saw it and we're going to be able to show them what they missed. And just let me make a little show note for our dedicated fans. We're not going to make a habit of this, but this is two weeks in a row where we're covering a movie where a psychic protagonist rents a spare little top floor bedroom from a stern <laughs> landlady and proceeds to get visited by supernatural visions and fuck the place up. So that keeps Man, happening to us. You're so good at drawing these parallels. Really. <laughs> like they're both in these little top floor rooms with the slanty walls. I'm like, how did that happen? We didn't plan this. We did not plan this. I will <laughs> say, let's get this out of the way now. Dr. Sleep has the Blastober title belt for 2022 okay. right now. You may disagree, but that's why we talk about it. All right. Do you want to walk us through the, uh, the storyline of the movie a little bit? Let's jump on in. Here we go. Eloise Ellie Turner, played by Thomas and McKenzie, is a young fashion design student with a love for the 1960s and the ability to see spirits, including the ghost of her late mom. Ellie just moved to London, and she's finding it hard to fit in with her fashion school classmates, a pack of mean girls led by her roommate, Jocasta. So Ellie moves out of the dorms, takes a job as a bartender, and rents a studio apartment in Soho from an elderly landlady named Mrs. Collins, played by Diana Rigg. But each night, as Ellie sleeps in her new bed, her dreams are filled with intensely real visions of life through the eyes of her apartment's long-ago tenant, a young lady named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who herself was recently arrived in 1960s London with a fierce ambition to become a star nightclub singer. Sandy seems to be on the rise when she hooks up with a charismatic young manager named Jack, played by Matt Smith. And so does Ellie, as she starts to shine at school thanks to her nightly doses of genuine 1960s inspiration. This is a big role for Thomas and Mackenzie. Were you familiar with her before this? I was, but I didn't know it. Like I saw, right. what's her Living in the Forest movie with your boy? The Living in the Forest movie with my boy. You know what I'm <laughs> talking about? What's her movie? She lives in the forest. Living no in the trace. forest with Ben. F- I thought you said Living in the Forest like Star Wars. <laughs> yes. Leave No Trace. Leave, Leave no, no Trace with Ben Foster. Yes. Great ben movie. Foster. Uh, definitely one of your dudes, right? Oh, absolutely. I bought Ben Foster stock lots of it <laughs> years ago and I'm still holding on to it. She was awesome, but I kind of didn't recognize her because she plays a little American girl in that and she plays a little British girl in this. So like, how could I possibly connect the two ladies? Both kind of timid, a little mousy, but yeah, Leave No Trace was kind of a big breakout for her. That was a, a great movie. And again, I'm in the same boat where I saw Leave No Trace and I really liked it, but I didn't clock her as the same actors in this movie. I was impressed with her in Leave no trace, but she's a little bit of a chameleon as the yeah. movie kind of takes advantage of, not even just in her acting style. Her look can change pretty yeah. fluidly. Yeah. One of the charming parts about this movie is she gives herself a makeover in the middle of this first act, I guess. And you're like, wow, that's her. She's dynamic. Yeah. The first, the first like 40 minutes of this movie is really just like a charming coming of age story about this girl in London. There's very little hint that anything sinister is going on, except for the fact that men are being terrible, which is nothing surprising. But there's a cab driver who makes a weird remark about her legs. There's just random guys being creepy to her. This is a fun double feature with Alex Garland's men to show that British men have always been fucking terrible because oh my God. back in yeah. the 60s and today, whether you're in the city or the countryside, whether they all look like that one guy, <laughs> British men are the worst. At a supernatural level, apparently. Yeah. Um, so there's one little hint at the top of the movie that there's going to be something supernatural and spooky going on. And that's her mom in the mirror, which was mm-hmm. cool, which gave me a chill. But then I'm like, then the movie moves on and it's dealing with, like you said, real contemporary issues moving to the big city and dealing with dudes. And her grandmother does have some lines, a kind of reference that maybe Eloise has had mental health troubles in the past. Right. She seems worried about her going to the big city. But again, like that's nothing that would hint to you that anything supernatural is going to happen. It's pretty, pretty straightforward girl trying to find herself in the big city story. And then she gets the worst fucking roommate of all time. Let's talk yes. about Jocasta. Jocasta, Jocasta. Man, she's nasty. Like, it's not funny how nasty she's like. You're like, okay, this is an Edgar Wright movie. There's going to be some room for comic relief. And maybe the really mean girl roommate is going to be that, but she just keeps being gross and you're like, fuck, I hate this girl. Yeah. She doesn't seem overly antagonistic to Eloise at first, but she just seems like a real drag to be around. And then gradually the claws come out when she realizes that they're not going to be best friends or whatever. I cannot imagine having this person as a roommate. I would do exactly what Eloise did. Even with knowing full well that the fucking apartment is haunted and there's dead bodies (laughs) on the floorboard, spoiler alert, I'd still be like, you know what? It beats living with her. She's awful. And it's elevated to a comic level, but it's really hard to laugh at her because it's so painful. And 
Ellie is so sympathetic that you're like, she's just bumming so hard and you're right there with her. She's kind of like the Jersey Shore version of a British person. Just like very, I want to go out, get fucked up. That's a good reference. Yeah, she's super into her fashion and she finds this clique of other fashion girls. And there's Ellie in the dress that she made and she rips into her for wearing her homemade style. Kudos to the actress though for pulling off a character this hateable. She nails it. She really does a great job. And But then we have to talk about Diana Rigg because yeah. that ties into my show and tell today. There you go. That's why I talked about Game of Thrones today because I'm watching Diana Rigg be an absolute powerhouse on that too. But she's great as Mrs. Collins. She's so ornery and yeah. brusque. What's up with landladies, man? Whether you're in New Hampshire or Hampshire, yeah. you don't take no shit. No, she's great. It's inspired casting and there's a lot of it. She and Terrence Stamp, who we'll get to a little bit later in the movie, and also the lady who runs the bar where Ellie gets a job mm. are all actors who participated in London in the 60s. So they're not only right. like their characters work for this thing, but they had been through it. And so there's this deep thread that connects them to the story. And it's just another example of Edgar Wright going the extra mile to embed stuff really deeply in the story. The details, baby, the details. And if you want me to have some goodwill towards your movie, just fucking put Terrence Stamp in it. Love that guy. Yeah, what a he's gem. He's so good. I was scared of him my whole childhood because of fucking General's Odd, man. That came, oh, yeah. out when I was, that came out when I was a kid. And that was a fucking scary character for a like, silly Superman movie. And so he's kind of terrified me ever since. Michael Shannon did a good job, too. It's impossible yes. to follow that performance. But if you're going to give it to anyone, I think Shannon's the guy who can do yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. Close as you can get. We got to talk about the limey one day. We got to cover that just because that's peak stamp being just a kind of like slightly past middle age, but still a badass yeah. stomping around Hollywood. Great fucking movie. Have you seen the limey? You know what? I think I watched half of it and then something distracted me. I got to go back because that's your guy Soderbergh, right? It's an hour yeah. and 20 minutes, man. Okay. There's no reason to not have seen the limey. Check it out. I don't know because I can't think of how it ended, but now I'm going to go find out after this. You might as well just wait because I'm going to put it on the schedule. So oh, okay, cool. I'm going to make that a priority. Speaking of the Forbidden Zone. Or the Phantom Zone, as it's actually called. And the people looking out at you through glass. This movie has a lot of mirrors in it, doesn't it? This is sure really is. kind of a movie about mirrors with a side plot about young women in it. From the very first scene in the movie, which has the mom in the mirror, to the last scene where she circles back around, strangely enough, there's so much mirror symbolism in this movie and actual just like useful use of mirrors as the mechanism for how this time travel and spiritual shit happens. It's really cool, though. There's a lot of characters that, that could be considered mirror images of each other, and that's a fun motif to play with. But just mm -hmm. like the technical aspect of filming with mirrors is so beyond what I can comprehend in my stupid little brain that <laughs> I just find it so impressive what he was able to pull off with this. It's a real technical achievement. In addition to working for the story, which is kind of like technique, I think needs to be in service of the story to some degree. And he's kind of a master at that, of being flashy, but having it make sense in his world and kind of what he's built. A lot of the story is told with minimal dialogue. There's a lot of these dream sequences, which have some dialogue, but they're really about experiencing how this works for Ellie. She's having dreams and she sees herself and like, is she Sandy? Is she living Sandy's life? Sometimes she is. Sometimes she's just Sandy's reflection in the mirror. And so it's quite complicated to execute. And again, another thing about Edgar Wright's dedication, he talks about in interviews how he spent all this time digging up movies that did mirror shots and interviewing the filmmakers and how did you do this and figuring out because he didn't want to do a fully digital thing. He wanted these actors to be in the same room and to act together. And so a lot of the time and stuff that you see and you think could be digital trickery, it's actually Thomason and Anya acting across from each other in sets that have a window between them and they're mirrored and they're like the guy who takes her coat is a guy who happens to have an identical twin who's playing himself on the other side of the mirror and oh, he's, take, he's taking Ellie's coat. So it's, yeah, there's a really awesome mix of practical effects and digital to sell this whole thing and it's beautiful. Love, love to see it. Love to see practical effects having their day in the sun again to some extent. It just looks so much better. Like it looks great. The movie's really throwing a lot of very complicated shots at you and you never feel it laboring because he put the work in to stage it so well that it feels effortless. He's masterful. And like that scene when Ellie first has her big dream and transitions over into 60s London, to me, like that sells the whole movie. When that happened and it starts with this killer transition where she pulls a sheet over her in bed and the camera pulls back and then it's pulling back like 50 yards of sheet over her head and then she pops out onto the street in London. That's when you know, like, okay, something special is happening here. This movie is going to delight me with something that I haven't seen before. And it does. Let's talk about Sandy a little bit because this is like a more bombastic performance from Anya Taylor-Joy than I think I was accustomed to. She tends to play like very cerebral characters, kind of quiet. She's always, there's a real intelligence to her, but she's kind of playing, not a party girl, so to speak, but like she's got to, she's got to be a little brash because she wants to be a star. So she's got to make her presence yeah. felt. And that was just a nice change of pace from what I've seen from Anya and other roles recently. I totally bought into her. This is a real, really good performance. It's super. You're right. She's hard charging, super ambitious. And she has a few lines that 
help do that. But both of these actors have amazing eyes and they do a lot of acting with their eyes in all these scenes that take place, whether directly with music taking over or they're just happening in loud nightclubs. So they're acting with their eyes and it's really powerful. Just to briefly touch on Matt Smith as Jack, because we were talking about casting what ifs for Dr. Sleep last week. We talked a little bit about Matt Smith and kind of Mm -hmm. how there's a darkness to him that maybe wouldn't have worked with Danny and how he's always playing stuff like he's one step ahead and he knows something the other characters don't like. And then you just see him in a movie that takes that and uses it perfectly to its advantage because that's exactly what his character is in this movie. He's playing, Jack is playing a role in the early scenes with him and then we gradually see him drop his guard as Sandy is stuck with him essentially. Just like he did in Morbius where he was like the cool guy friend and then he turned kind of evil. He hasn't really turned evil yet in the movie. I think we as an audience when we see Matt Smith we're just kind of like something evil is going to happen now. I just dropped Morbius references to provoke you and to provoke our audience but this movie was a little better than Morbius. A little bit. And uh, Matt Smith was really good in it. He's really charming. Sandy gets charmed by him in those first couple nights with him and so do we. We're like oh this dude is happening. Let's get in his little MG and drive around the streets of London. You're looking at Sandy like no don't fall for this. We know he's going to be bad but at the same (laughs) time you're like who would not do the same? Who would not Mm -hmm. fall for him? He's just charming and there's a nice little bit where he sets up a fist fight to defend her honor and the other guy's clearly in on it. I liked that even the boxing was period appropriate. Like they actually did the old timey stance. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, they're the kind of punches that he throws are kind of stylized and cool. And that's another cool Edgar Wright flourish. That scene pays off and you find out that it was a setup between those two guys, but it's in a totally nonverbal thing as the camera is just swooping by one time and you're like, oh shit. Yep. Those guys had planned that whole thing, but he doesn't have to use any dialogue to tell you that. It's just beautifully told. Overall, this movie has very few lines in it. It's really just not a dialogue-heavy movie. It likes to tell you a story through images, which sounds silly considering it's a movie, which all <laughs> movies do. But you think dialogue is an important part of storytelling for a lot of films. And Edgar Wright is just trusting his audience that they don't miss the little details that are purely visual. That's one of the reasons why Edgar Wright stands out as a director. So many movies just plop the camera down in, in traditional ways and let the actors talk you through the story, but he wants to show you and it's quite a thing to see. Are you ready for the middle part of the movie? Yeah. Why don't you tell us what happened next? You got it. Ellie's nightly dreams of the 60s go from hypnotic to troubling as Sandy's life takes a dark turn. Jack helps get Sandy a job as a chorus girl at a nightclub, but it's soon clear his real goal is to pimp her out to the men who come to the shows. As Sandy becomes trapped in a life of prostitution, drugs, and alcohol, Ellie is tortured by having to watch it unfold. On Halloween, a kind boy named John takes Ellie out dancing, but she starts seeing ghosts of the men who victimize Sandy and it threatens to derail their fledgling romance. Ellie brings John back to her place, but then she's overcome by a vision. She believes she's witnessing Jack stabbing Sandy to death in her bed, and her screams bring Mrs. Collins, who breaks up their night and sends John packing. Ah, John. What a good dude. Literally the sweetest man that has ever been in a movie. (laughs) He's competing with Ellie because we meet Ellie and she's like the sweetest thing we've ever seen. And then John starts to spend time on screen and we're like, oh man, what a little sweetie this guy is. He is just heart of gold. And like, I was texting you during (laughs) my first watch of it, like, all right, this kid's going to die or he's going to (laughs) end up being secretly terrible because up to this point, yeah, I was very nervous for John. Like I, I developed a real affection for this character immediately. And the movie's been so dead set on showing like men suck, don't trust them. It does a nice move with John when we meet him. It's a very clever piece of writing where Ellie's already had it with men by the time she crosses his path. And she's like, no, fuck you, don't help me up the stairs. I don't need help from men. And then after that, you start to see that he's actually not a bad dude, but he makes this mistake of taking her Coke from the fridge that had her name on it. And he's like, oh shit, look what I did. And it's great. It's just enough to like keep them at a distance for the first couple beats together, which is really fun. Can we take a beat and go back to the fridge with the name? thing because I wanted to point out that Jacosta had enough food in that fridge to feed a family of eight. There's no way she's going through all that stuff before it goes bad. No, she had just filled up the fridge with her stuff and I'm like, who else shares that fridge? That's more than just their room because that was like a common room. It seems like a common area, yeah. There's got to be at least like a pod of four dorm rooms that are sharing that fridge and yeah, Jocasta's just an ass. She's claimed the whole thing. And then she drinks somebody else's. She picks out the only thing that's not labeled, which is a bottle of Jägermeister and starts drinking that. (sighs) Ah, Jocasta. What are we going to do with her? Sandy's descent into misery and her new life is pretty hard to watch. It's not graphic by any means. You're not seeing anything that's going to turn your stomach, but you can just see kind of the light going out of her eyes from scene to scene. You can surmise everything that's happening just from really strong context clues. Yeah. Like we said, a lot of it's told in montage, but there are a few pieces where she has a real confrontation with Jack. He starts to ask her to spend time in air quotes with one of the gentlemen. And that's when she realizes that it's starting to turn bad and she has a little confrontation. 
conversation. And then there's a montage, I think coming right out of that scene where Ellie swaps dresses and then she's in the scene instead of Sandy and she's running from Jack. But she sees what's really an illustrated version of all the bad stuff that's going on because she's running down this hallway of dressing rooms behind the nightclub. And as she looks in each dressing room, something else is going on. Someone's shooting up heroin. Someone's giving a blowjob. Someone is calling their mom and saying, I didn't know what I got myself into. It's really great. It's like another Edgar Wright thing where without giving you the harsh version of any of it, he shows you like, yeah, this is where all this is leading. And here's every different bad thing that could and probably did happen to Sandy. And then you also get flashes of Jack with other girls who haven't been Mm -hmm. corrupted by him yet. So you see that this is clearly a cycle for him. He's not just, he's a pimp essentially. Uh, Yeah, totally He's introduced as a manager, but he's really a pimp. And in a very crafty way, he hides that just long enough to get his hooks in to these girls and then gradually reveals his terribleness when it's a little too late. It's rough. And then Sandy really descends. Then there's another, some of these scenes kind of run together and they're hard to pull apart in your head. There's another scene where now she's fully in the mix and she's just trying to survive it. And she goes to this club where she has to dance with guys and each one of them takes her over to a side table and buys her a glass of champagne and she's getting more and more out of it. And Ellie is there. This is one of my favorite mirror moments, although there's seriously 25 different mirror moments in this movie, but this is a favorite one. She's pounding on the glass from the other side and that night's dream ends when she breaks through the glass and it's kind of shocking because there's a big crash and it cuts away just as she's wrapping her arms around Sandy and I'm like, that moment gave me a chill. It was just a really cool connection between these two that have been separated to this point. And I think it's important to note in that montage you're talking about where the guys are sitting her down and talking to her and she keeps giving a different name. That is where we meet, I wouldn't call him kindly because even as a young man, he's kind of creepy. Yeah. But we meet Lindsay. Does he even say, he doesn't even say his name's Lindsay. No, I don't think he introduces himself. That character doesn't get named until he's dead. Spoiler alert later in the movie. He gets fucked up by the way. It's like the one movie's real instance of gore is Lindsay. Yeah, he's a young guy. Sandy pegs him for a cop right away, but he's not being like warm to her either, even though we get he's maybe trying to help her later on. He's being creepy and weird. Like the guy can't fucking help it. He can't turn it off. He's being protective, but in an aggressive way. And he manages to like insult her while telling her that she's better than this and you got to get out of it. I love that guy. That actor's name is Sam Claflin, who I think I've seen in other stuff. What I noticed about him in this is just because we had already met Terrence Stamp as the older version of that character. And I'm like, oh yeah, he nailed it. We talked about last week characters doing other famous performances with Dr. Sleep and people doing the Torrance family. And like this guy does a perfect Terrence Stamp in the middle of the same movie. Even harder because Terrence Stamp is in this movie. So it's not like you can just be like, I haven't seen Terrence Stamp in a couple of years. I think he got it pretty close. (laughs) Now you're going to see him again in like 20 minutes. So you better fucking nail it. And he does. You're right. But like we've seen Terrence Stamp as an actor in the 60s. Like he's been acting, Mm -hmm. he was acting a long time. So there is footage out there and good shout. He nailed it. Walks that line of like intriguing and creepy, like every man in this movie. It's a fun character and it's a challenging one. We'll talk to about what happens in the third act. He meets a weird end and you're like, oh, did that have to happen that way? But this was a very pointed kind of a character and he never drops it. No. Let's talk about the end of the section. Yeah, that's a big set piece. We're calling it the end of act two. She brings John up to the room and she has this vision. She thinks what she's seeing is Jack on top of Sandy in their bed. It ruins her little rendezvous with John and it kind of ruins her life because she is just unhinged for the rest of the movie. It's a really well-crafted set piece. I mean, the party itself, the costumes, like everything about it is really impressive. But I do have to say like the decision to bring John back to her apartment was just mind boggling to me. Everything terrible is happening to you when you go home at night and go back to your apartment. What are you even doing? I was just so, so flabbergasted by that Bad choice. idea. Where does he live? That's true. That's a good question. <laughs> go to his place. I know he said he lives in South London. He lives kind of far away. Okay. They make a point of saying that later on. But uh, I thought he was in the dorms. So maybe he's just got a dude roommate and he can't bring a girl back because I feel like he moved up there too. But yeah, you know, Ellie's still a kid and she's pretty distressed by the time Halloween is wrapping up and she gets this little bit of comfort from this guy who turns out to be genuinely nice. And maybe she thinks, she's like, maybe that's what I needed. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe I can make it through this. Because he tells her, she's like, I just wish I was like everybody else. And he's like, no, I'm glad you're who you are. And she accepts herself for a minute. And uh, it was a mistake. Things didn't go well when they got back. But it was very sweet before that. When she says, I wish I was like everybody else, I think the movie is kind of trying to fill in some of the gaps for us in her past. It never really spells out what her issues were yeah. you know, that, that her grandmother alluded to, but maybe seeing things and having some hallucinations was part of it. Yeah. She, she doesn't necessarily seem surprised when these things first start happening. It's just when they start going bad that they really start affecting her mentally. Yeah. And I had this note in the next section, but it's worth talking about right here. This is where I think the movie does go jalo. And I don't really know because I still haven't seen any of those Italian originals. But like from what I see from people who are paying homage to it, like in that scene where she sees what she thinks is Jack stabbing Sandy 
She's wearing these black circles around her eyes because they dressed up as ghosts for Halloween. They put some black and white makeup on their faces and her eyes are freaked out and they're reflected in the blade of a knife as it's stabbing somebody and there's blood splashing. And I'm like, we saw all this stuff in Malignant. Like yeah. there's people in trench coats running around in the rain, bright neon lights flashing, knives flashing and eyes. Like the poster of Malignant is a big wide eye because that actress Annabelle Wallace was also really good at showing that shocked horror face. And, uh, and Thompson McKenzie does it great. And pretty much from that moment when her eyes light up in the blade of the knife through the end of the movie, she has big black circles around her eyes and she is wide eyed in horror the rest of the time. For a man who says he's not really familiar with Jalo, you you sure do understand like the visual motifs really well because all everything you just said is like very Argento. It shows that these directors who are using that stuff are doing it well. They really captured all the right bits. Definitely. Even though the movie shies away from the nastier aspects of Jalo, you can definitely still feel it. It's influence here for sure. There's something really horrifying. Like for me, the scariest moment in Malignant was one shot where they show Annabelle Wallace's face and she just has this incredible look of terror in her eyes. That was the scariest shot in Malignant to you, not the fucking reveal of the giant baby tumor on the back of her head. (laughs) Yeah, the baby tumor was a cool effect, but no, it really was like, it's just like they say that comedy is in the reaction. It's not the person doing the funny thing. It's the person watching the person doing the funny thing. Like Mm. I think horror is the same way. It's the person watching the scary thing happening. That's what really freaks me out. And it worked in that movie and it worked here too. All right, I buy it. I buy it. You won me over. Selling my theory (laughs) of comedy and horror. Did you know that they're intertwined? No one's ever made that comparison before. Yeah, certainly not Edgar Wright. All right, let's walk through the end of the movie. Okay, here we go. Coming home. The day after her Halloween revelation, Ellie goes to the library to research Sandy's murder. She's starting to believe the silver-haired gentleman she's been seeing around Soho is actually Jack. But ghostly figures chase her from the library, and when she tries to report a 50-year-old murder to the police, they're dubious. She goes to her job at the bar, where she confronts the silver-haired gentleman, who's as gruff and cryptic as ever. As he leaves, he's hit and killed by a passing car, after which Ellie learns he wasn't Jack at all, but a former vice cop who once tried to help Sandy. John offers to drive Ellie back home to Cornwall, but first she has to make one last stop at the apartment. There we learn the final twist. Mrs. Collins is Sandy. In truth, Sandy had wrestled the knife from Jack and killed him on that fateful night. After which, she murdered every other John who visited her and buried them under the floorboards. Now, she's going to kill Ellie to stop her from digging up the truth. But John intervenes, and he and Ellie manage a narrow escape as the ghosts close in, the building catches fire, and old Sandy Collins allows herself to burn up with it. Later, we see a happy Ellie fulfilling her dream with a successful school fashion show as the approving ghosts of her mother and Sandy look on from the other side of the mirror. When are we going to get both Last Night in Soho 2 and The Frighteners 2, where it's Sandy and uh, Eloise's mom following Eloise around and helping her get into hijinks and stuff? I yeah. would be up for that. And that movie had people coming through the walls, too, like they do in the end of this thing. All the dead exactly. guys in the walls start popping out at the end. See, one of the movies that Edgar Wright is heavily influenced by is Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. I'm not sure he's be, ever seen it. He's seen everything. That dude is like a yeah. cinema encyclopedia. It's crazy. That's true. I want to know if you agree with me. Did you find the pattern? this movie is diving into to get a little fatiguing at this point where say Eloise goes out in public she's doing fine she's making some progress either with the case or with her personal life Uh and then like visions of creepy faceless men start and she ends up acting insane and running around and screaming and (laughs) it it just keeps happening and at this like the library is a big one and everything kind of comes to a head at the library because she actually starts like attacking people without realizing it so there's really no there's no coming back from that now like she's no longer just the weird girl who seems a little disturbed in your class. Like now she tried to stab Jacosta in the face, but it's like yeah. enough is enough at some point. Did you, were you starting to get a little tired of it? It is a lot. And it is a lot in contrast with the first half of the movie, which is much more lyrical and fantastical. And then there's a lot of ghost chasing and her freaking out and running. So yeah, this is one point where I would say, okay, maybe Edgar Wright didn't find a way to heighten these beats. There's a lot of them. Maybe there could have been one or two fewer of them. Or, like you said, they do heighten in the fact that in that library scene is where it crosses a certain line where she's alienating anyone left in her world. And maybe you have to worry about just John freaked out too, because he's the one who stops her from stabbing Jocasta through the eye. Great reflexes, by the way. (laughs) Thank God. It's good to have a boyfriend like that. It can handle you at your worst. But that does feel repetitive. And it's a lot of, for a movie that was all cool 60s songs, there's a lot of screaming and freaking out and ghosts groaning and moaning and chasing down alleys. I do think that Wright tried to heighten it and kind of ramp up the terror by making more of them and making them a little bolder. Like they start reaching out and grabbing her. You come to understand like, 
a lot of that is probably people trying to stop her and, and help her. But that seems to be his only way of increasing the threat from these things. And it's just not enough to make it worthwhile, like the fourth or fifth time we've seen it. Yeah. And there's a big twist by the end, but it only happens in one of the final moments. We don't realize what's going on in the library. She's doing this research. She's looking through every newspaper headline from the 1960s to look for something that says a girl named Sandy was killed. And she thinks she's striking out. She's like, oh, all I'm seeing here is just a bunch of dudes are going missing. Get this shit out of my way. This doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> and then it turns out those are the dudes who are- Fuck those dudes. They're the ones who happen to be standing right behind her and chasing her and scaring the shit out of her. And in the end, they're after her for help. That's a big, fun, ironic twist that I didn't see coming. And then they literally ask her for help near the very end. Yeah. I will say that I clocked Sandy and Mrs. Collins being one and the same pretty early on, but Sandy turning into an avenging angel slash vigilante was not something that I saw coming. So yeah. that part at least took me by surprise and I was happy for it. That was a bold move. Do you want to talk about that twist and what it might mean to the message of the movie? Did you find that it undermines the message of the movie at all? I think it definitely made me question it, right? Because you watch the first part of this movie, and like we said from the beginning, it's like men are bad and that's pretty clear from the top. And then it seems like, oh, it's even more so because now they're literal monsters chasing their down the street with their horrible eyeless faces. And then you go, oh, wait, am I supposed to feel sympathetic? They're scared of Sandy. She became the real monster. And so it makes you think, but not in a bad way that like, oh, Edgar Wright just undermined the message of his movie because he does address that. And the character herself talks about it. And Ellie forgives her and says, this was not your fault. They made you into this monster. But it's fun. I think that was a good thought-provoking twist. What did you think? Yeah, I don't think it turns Sandy into a monster and the men into the victims. I think it's still clear that she is the victim in this scenario because it was the trauma these men inflicted upon her that kind of pushed her past her breaking point. The movie could be making a commentary on cycles of abuse, but I think it's a tricky thing because the movie needs to have a flesh and blood villain, right? Or at least right. an antagonist, not necessarily a villain. So who are you going to go with now that Lindsay's not Jack and either way he's dead <laughs> anyway? There needs to be a physical thing you can reach out and touch and kill to kill Eloise's torment. I think the movie did the best it could with kind of the cards that had laid out by that point. Again, there's enough supporting evidence that still, like Sandy's clearly traumatized and she's clearly like a little broken, but right. she's lashing out in the only way she has any power to do so. She's more than a little broken, I would say, because she's still pretty desensitized to murder at her <laughs> yeah. age. Like she's had decades to think on what happened to her and what she did in her youth. And she's still like, oh, this little punk ass kid is sniffing around. I guess I'm going to have to kill her too. I'll be nice. I'll just let her die of poisoning and call it a suicide. But yeah, she's really fun. It's also like, this is a schlocky horror movie. And I think that's a lot of people's problem with it is like they saw the first half and they didn't want it to turn into a schlocky horror movie. But Edgar Wright is having a ton of fun with it being a schlocky horror movie. So Diana Rigg has this killer monologue at the end, which is full of emotional, meaningful reflection on her life. And then she turns into a crazy stabby lady with a knife and she's chasing her <laughs> up the stairs. And it's awesome too. She's a good, scary villain. We got to talk about the psychedelic staircase chase too, where yes. like the staircase turns into this rainbow road situation. Yeah. It was really cool, really psychedelic. I was very into it. It's super fun. And there's the images at the end. It ends up in the bedroom and all the guys come out of the walls and they, they grab Ellie. But then basically, I guess Sandy redeems herself when she realizes that she needs to die for what she, like she basically kills herself. And lets Eloise go, notably. And lets Eloise yeah, she get away. She says, save yourself, save the boy. I'm going to pay for what I did. And it ends with another killer shot of Anya Taylor-Joy sitting at the end of the bed while the room is consumed in flames. And what about this conversation Eloise ends up having with Lindsay? We got to talk about that a little bit because that's some super fun, creepy, cryptic convos back and forth. Circle back to our boy Terrence Stamp, who we mentioned unfortunately dies after this conversation. is like, dude, do you have to be that way? <laughs> Yeah, hey, say what you mean. Use plain English. Stop being so fucking cryptic. Yeah, he's talking in circles. He's always acting really scary and intimidating. Did you get the vibe, though? The older bartender, maybe the owner, the way she kind of talks about Lindsay after he's hit by the car, did you get the sense that maybe he was losing it mentally or because oh. she's like, oh, poor Lindsay, like, what did you do this time? Maybe he was talking in circles because he like couldn't quite make sense of it all. He half remembered things. Mm. I Like the movie doesn't, it's not really explicit about that, but that's kind of the vibe I got from the way she talks about him. That's a really fun reading of it to think that he was kind of tortured by this because he was a guy who was trying to save these young women during that time. And he watched a lot of them either die or their lives ruined as Sandy's was. He also dropped some lines that indicate maybe he knew what Sandy was doing and was okay with it. He almost knew where he was trying to figure it out, but he suspected. Yeah. Yeah. But it's all really cryptic and it's all really threatening. If he would just go, look, hey, look, I was a cop. I used to work here. I was trying to save these girls. Give me a break for a second. He does not have it in him to do that. And instead he ends up charging Ellie up. She smashes a bottle and says, I know you killed 
her. And he's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Runs out of the place and gets run over. But before she says, I know you killed her, she says some very accusatory things. And he's just like, shut up. (laughs) You're not denying anything. (laughs) It's it's a little bit writerly, right? Like you see the screenwriting at work because they're like, she has to not realize that he's a good guy until he's dead. And so he has to continue to be like this for the plot. It's quite outlandish, but it's great because he can pull it off. She can pull it off. The whole movie can make these things work. He's kind of like an old drunk. I'm not fully committed to this theory, but I think there's something there that maybe he was just turned into the town drunk because of what he'd seen. So nobody kind of takes him that seriously anymore. And that's where we left him. And that's why nobody paid him any mind. I like that read of him. That redeems him a little bit. And it also kind of shows the ripple effects of this terrible wave of violence that happened. And I'm not talking about Sandy's wave of violence necessarily. I'm talking more about like Jack's wave of trapping these girls in this lifestyle that ended up hurting a lot of them. It got this guy decades later. Jack's still at it. Matt Smith can't keep him down. He's going to find a way to kill you one way or another. (laughs) So that was last night in Soho. There's a little bit of fun behind the scenes. This comes up every time we do a more recent movie that there's just not a ton of retrospectives out there on it. So little tidbits that maybe happened during filming are not available to the public yet. Maybe there will be like an Edgar Wright biography in five years and we'll learn. There was like a big feud on set or this person was almost cast in this role, but there's none of that right now. Interesting fact though, Thomas and Mackenzie dropped out of Top Gun Maverick to be in this. So I heard that is really weird and I haven't seen Maverick yet and I can't oh, imagine. Oh, miss, missing out. So you having seen it, do you know what role that would have been? And does it make sense uh, to you? Uh, there's only one role I can think of that would make any sense. And yes, I think she would work in that as a okay. character. But unfortunately, there's one female pilot in the okay. movie that's the right age. And it was Natasha Trace, aka Phoenix, played okay. by Monica Barbaro, who was quite good in it. But she's got kind of a similar look, Thomas and Mackenzie. They're around the same age. So there's really no other option. Like she wasn't playing the Jennifer Connelly character, obviously. Right. And that's, sure. Yeah. There's not many other places to go. And that's a pretty sizable role in the biggest successful movie of the year. But again, that that's a pretty minor role compared to what she gets to do in this. She definitely got to show off her chops a lot more. And you know. This was like, yeah, if you're getting back-end points, you want to be in Maverick. But if you're trying to have a cool, distinguished Hollywood career, I think Soho is a little more fun for an actor. Even the people that didn't like this movie seem to have universally positive things to say about Miss McKenzie. She's very charming. She's, she's great, so, even when she's a crazed lunatic. She's so damn charming. Yeah. What a treat to have somebody like that in your film when you need a character to win people over the way this one does. It's Yeah, she's magnetic. And she's not an easy character to love 100% of the time because you just want to grab her and be like, don't put that sweet boy in harm's way. But then Anya Taylor-Joy, she does her own singing in this movie. So I found out she's got a wonderful singing voice. That's a neat part of it. And Edgar Wright, as original and special as he is, like you hinted at earlier, he fell prey to one of the hackiest tricks in the book, which is the slowed down, sad acapella version (laughs) of an old happy song to use in your spooky movie. That being said, Anya Taylor-Joy kind of nails it. It works. Singing downtown, all slow and sad. I did want to shout out, there is a cover of Always Something There to Remind Me in this movie that is fucking phenomenal. Really loved it. I'm going to put it on my Spotify playlist. There's no segue to that or context. We're just talking about songs in this movie and I fucking love that cover. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of 60s music and there's a few more contemporary pieces in there and they're really good. Edgar Wright kind of doesn't go wrong when it comes to picking tunes. It's funny to think of Always Something There to Remind Me as contemporary, but it it was written in the (laughs) 60s, wasn't it? Like the version everyone knows is from the 80s, but I think the original was from the 60s. Oh, I had to look that up. I thought that was a full on 80s joint. I'm fairly certain because I was looking up for the, I was trying to find out who sings the cover. Oh yeah, you're right. That song goes way back to the 60s. 1964, okay. yeah. written by Burt Bacharach. There you go. And then, so Edgar Wright showed an early cut of this movie to George Miller, which is how Anya Taylor-Joy got cast as Furiosa, which ah. is filming currently. He was so enraptured by her performance. He said, got to do it. Got to cast her as Furiosa. It's big shoes to fill. Charlize Theron's, uh, you know, iconic performance in yeah. Fury Road. Anya Taylor-Joy's career arc is pretty impressive. She seemed to be spreading like wildfire in Hollywood, even probably as her stuff was in production. Or like you said, show an early cut to another director and then boom, there's another gig and she's just hopping from one cool thing to the next. This is our first time covering her on this so I can do a little career retrospective and preview for you, as I like to do. She got her start in The Witch, a movie I think we both really like. Yes. And then she did Split, the M. Night Shyamalan, James McAvoy movie, which she was really good at. Right, yeah. McAvoy gets a lot of the the praise for that movie, but she was good in it too. That was a hard role for her. And uh, she reprised that role in Glass, which is less successful, both critically and commercially. And then she did Emma, which I didn't see. I think, didn't you see Emma? I I feel like you talked about it when- Yes, I love Emma. Emma is awesome. See that if you like her, and this goes for you and anybody else 
is listening. Big fan of that, Emma. And then she did The Queen's Gambit in 2020, which I feel like was her big breakout because everyone in the world has Netflix and everybody in the world watched the show. And she was obviously great in it. Yeah. And then she was in The New Mutants, unfortunately. I think she filmed that years prior and it just took forever uh-huh. to get released. We'll talk about that more one day, I'm sure. And then she followed up last night in Soho with The Northman. Unfortunately, another movie we'll talk about yeah. one day. And then she's got The Menu, which is getting pretty good buzz. We've talked about it a couple of times because it was originally going to be the Alexander Payne movie. Okay. So it came up during Downsizing. She's in Amsterdam, which is the new David O. Russell movie that is not getting good reviews and is apparently going to lose a ton of money. Oh boy. It's got like an $80 million budget and I think it's tracking to make like $3 million. It's opening weekend. So maybe she's not doing as well. Like I think she's doing amazing because she's like in two Robert Eggers movies and she's in an Edgar Wright movie. And I'm like, that's heaven. Like you've made it as an actor, but I guess her box office is not matching her reputation. She's not the problem with any of these movies. Maybe she's not no. a name that can open a movie quite yet, but she's right. definitely putting in great performances that are, and a lot of these movies were well-reviewed and just didn't have the breakout. Amsterdam is not well-reviewed, but also fuck David O. Russell. So who gives a shit? He's a real dickhead. Okay. Um, I almost feel like everybody who decided to work with him kind of deserves to have a flop on their resume because you mm. fucking took the paycheck to work with this asshole. Yeah, just Google David O. Russell. He's not a good person, allegedly. Allegedly. She's also going to play Princess Peach in the Mario movie. So that's fun. Oh, but I say Mario, and I feel like our listeners are going to make fun of me, but that's, I say Mario, and then everyone else says Mario, but is that a New York thing saying Mario? Well, I know uh, Mario Cuomo, famous yeah, governor of New York, is, yeah, if you heard that your whole life, I feel like that's a New York thing. I expect New York people to say Mario, but I, I would default to Mario. My son's a big Super Mario fan, and okay. I would be like, do you want to play Mario Kart? And he was just like, dad, that's not how you say it. <laughs> and I was like, you're five fucking years old. What do you know? <laughs> what do you know? I had a friend named Mario growing up. He told me how to say his name. <laughs> yeah, that's Mario. Uh, you need. And then, of course, Furiosa, which we mentioned. So she's got a lot of movies coming out. I'm hoping the menu is successful because it's really fun concept. I'm curious to see it. Should be. So I, keep, I feel like I say this every other. Like it should be coming out any day now. Uh, but I think it's coming out some point in November. I know so much buildup. We should get part of the marketing budget for this movie. We are right. doing more to build it up than anybody. Our listeners have heard more about the menu than like <laughs> any other movie. And so then Thomas and Mackenzie. Let's talk about what she's been up to. Yes. We already talked about Leave No Trace, the Force movie. She uses <laughs> the Force. Get out of the forest with Ben Foster. She did Leave No Trace. She was also. Big part of Jojo Rabbit, which was a big okay. movie that people really liked, won an Oscar. Your mileage may vary on it. I think it's fine. She followed that up with Old. I didn't realize she was an old, but now I can see it. I had to look it up when I saw that she was in that. She plays a character who starts as a little girl and then becomes her age, right? In the Beaches middle of up, it. Because she was on the beach that makes you old. That's all it does. And then she followed Old up with Power of the Dog. So she's getting some big roles in there in some critically acclaimed movies. Yeah, that's a killer one. And this reflects her New Zealand roots. But she didn't have a big role in Power of the Dog because I'm having trouble picturing her in it or did she yeah no it wasn't a huge role i don't think okay. great soundtrack to power of the dog i still listen to it when i write it's johnny greenwood from radio oh, okay. yeah i remember it being kind of jarring and spooky it is it's like a horror movie soundtrack yeah which it's kind of fitting i guess yeah once you figure out what that movie is and she starred in bbc miniseries life after life she will star as eileen dunlop in a movie called eileen i assume eileen dunlop is a real person and an unnamed role in an upcoming series called gossamer okay so she's staying busy she's doing a lot of tv which is cool bbc shows are nice because you don't have to commit to it for like 10 years like you do with American shows. They get out of them quick. Get in, get out. Matt Smith, we covered Matt Smith pretty in depth pretty recently because we just did Morbius a couple months ago. So I don't want to spend too much time on him, but he is sure. getting rave reviews for his performance in House of the Dragon. I think he is the brightest star on that show right now. It helps that he didn't get recast. A lot of the other actors did. Mm, okay. We've been with him throughout and he's good. He's very devious and cunning and all the things that you look for in a Matt Smith performance. Sarcastic. Again, it's good typecasting. It's maybe not that fun for an actor to always go for those roles, but it works. He can pull those off. Are you watching that, by the way? I've slowed down, so I haven't got to that pivot point where the timeline changes. I got mm-hmm. a hint that something is going to change, but I kind of lost steam on it. I don't know. I liked him. I saw his big furious battle, and I'm like, okay, that was fun. It's weird. Yeah, it's trying to tell like a 25-year story real quick, but the thing is, once it catches up to a certain point in time, it's going to stop doing that, but like, we're almost done with season one, and it's still doing it. I just okay. want to be in a timeline that is constant and makes sense, Yeah, not have a five-year time jump every episode, but it's pretty good. It's just fun to be back in that world for me anyway. So Terrence Stamp is 84. God help me if he ever leaves this mortal coil before me because love that man. But he is pretty picky with his roles lately or maybe he's just winding down because he's older. He was in Murder Mystery in 2019 and the show His Dark Materials in 2020, which I didn't watch. Did you watch His Dark Materials? No, I might have tried to sample it. That comes from a series of novels, right? series. Yeah. There was a movie based on it a while ago, 10 years ago, maybe 15. And every time they try to make those into something, everyone's disappointed. And I'm like, oh, I heard the originals are really good. 
and then nothing has really done them justice on the screen. Yeah, I haven't dove into the novels, but I do remember a couple failed attempts to adapt it. So yeah. I don't think that show had legs. I think it was a one and done. Or if it's still kicking, it's clearly not infiltrating the collective consciousness of pop culture. I don't know about it. But this is still his most recent film. So he's picking and choosing his roles pretty carefully. Yeah. And Diana Rigg sadly passed away September 10th, 2020. So this was released posthumously for her. It's dedicated to her. There's a little for Diana at the top of the movie, which is nice. Mm-hmm. She's great in it. She was an actor for a long time, always put in great performances. But her role as Elena Tyrell really did kind of revive mainstream interest in her as an actress, yeah. which was great to see because she was awesome in that. And then that she was, was in a show called Black Narcissus, which was supposed to be good. I didn't check it out, but that was also released posthumously. That one scene on Game of Thrones was like worth the whole show. When she dies. Yeah. That was awesome. I'm not up to that <laughs> scene yet in the rewatch, but I remember it being great. That really made an impact. So when it was released, it opened, like we mentioned, in seventh place with $4.1 million. Other new releases that week were My Hero Academia, colon World Heroes Mission. <laughs> no, movie. no, that's not a movie. I disagree <laughs> with you. That cannot be a movie. <laughs> no, you'd be mistaken. I, I had to triple check. And also Antlers, which I think, wasn't that the, was that the Daniel Radcliffe movie? No, that was Horns. Antlers, oh, Antlers was that weird, creepy horror movie. Yes, Antlers is I a tusk that. kind of thing, more like body horror shit. It was body horror, I believe. Yeah, I, I think it was that, that guy who made Out of the Furnace was the director. Not important. I don't think it was very good. The top three spots that week were Dune, Halloween Kills, and No Time to Die. So okay. as much as you could have a tough lineup in 2021 when like almost no movies were going to theaters, that is a pretty tough lineup. That's heavyweight stuff for 2021. Especially with Halloween Kills there and this movie drops two days before Halloween. Yeah. It's a tough look. So it dropped to 10th place the next week with $1.8 million. Eternals debuted that week, so that took a lot mm. of the box office. And another and then, blow. Yeah. By its third week, it was in just 1,300 theaters and only made $839,000 dead in the water. Fucking Edgar, man. I wonder what this does to him in Hollywood when it comes to projects and taking meetings. And like everyone who cares about movies sees his movies and goes, this guy has got to just work as long as he wants to work. But what a shame that movies with this much heart and soul poured into them kind of just die on the vine like that. I think it kind of got graded on a curve because of COVID, like up until maybe this year, 2022, I feel like the kid gloves are off. And if your movie can't open, it can't open. But in 2021, I think a lot of people were still staying away from the theaters. He does have an upcoming project. He's been announced for the Running Man, the remake in the Running man oh, wow. ties into last week's episode he's doing a king adaptation that was a bachman originally wasn't it i think you're right it sounds like one yeah, originally obviously the arnold movie who directed the running man somebody ridiculous i think was it like verhoven, Did verhoven do the running man? paul michael glazer all right never mind would have been cool if he did verhoven but paul michael glazer still he's a name more of an actor than a director though so oh yeah that's interesting. i know him from starsky and hutch exactly so he is making the running man i don't think it's in production yet though so that could be canceled i think the last stuff i've heard about it was 2021 hoping it happens oh, okay. i think it'd be really cool to see what he does with it i'd say you know people wanted a baby driver sequel. It sounded like it was going to happen, but now Elgort is a tough beat right now too. So I don't know if he's going to go down that road. He was in West Side Story, which was also a big bomb, but he kind of stayed away from press for it. And you can't really do a baby driver press tour without baby driver. I was thinking about what does that mean? What his appearance in West Side Story, that was kind of already fully underway before his problematic side came out. So there was kind of no backing away with him in one of the starring roles. But yeah, the question is, do you launch a new venture with him at this point? He's in Tokyo Vice on HBO Max, which I also think was started pre the allegations against him, but that also got renewed for season two. So they're not shying away from him as far as I could tell. But I hope The Running Man happens. I mean, Edgar Wright's not going to just retire from making movies. He's too big a name. He's too big a star. He'll be back, but he might take some time. Who knows? Can't wait for whatever comes next. Do you have any closing thoughts on last night in Soho you wanted to share before I reveal next week's movie? I might just say something repetitive and dumb because I think I kind of already said this, but the thing is you go into this movie and like you said, one of the problems why it didn't sell, you don't know what it is and you can't really tell people what it is. So the movie has to catch you by surprise. It teaches you what it is in the first act. And then he fucked himself because it teaches you that it's this glorious, beautiful, romantic dream sequence movie that's elegant and charming and beautiful. And then Edgar Wright's like, but actually, you know what? I wanted to make a psychological horror thriller that's totally garish and melodramatic and cheesy. And there's zombie ghosts chasing you down alleys for fucking 25 minutes straight. (laughs) It's like, yeah, you could make that movie. If it would have made that movie straight through, people would go, oh, I know what this is. And I get it. It. And it's Edgar Wright and I'm having fun. But he basically set himself up to fail. And like all the reviews, especially from critics, like we said, like David Sims that we appreciate, I think fell victim to that or Edgar Wright fell victim to what he set them up for, which is I'm going to do the setup of my crazy slasher movie. It's going to be very elegant and beautiful. And everyone's like, I wanted the beautiful movie back and I wanted to teach me something deep. And he's like, no, I just kind of want these people to fucking run from ghosts and stab each other at the end. <laughs> Once you accept that, I think it's an awesome movie end to end. But I see why a lot of people are like it fell apart for me in the second half. I will say maybe a good indicator of 
why this movie struggled to find its audience is, so I have two friends. One is a mutual friend of ours, Ron. Shout out to Ron. And my other friend, Craig, who both said when they found out I was covering Last Night in Soho and Blasttober, like, wait, that was a horror movie? I didn't think it was a scary movie at all. That just tells you something about how the movie was sold to people. You don't even know. Shout out to Ron and Craig. But also, shout out to you, because halfway through this movie, you texted me and you're like, is this going to get scary at all? Did we miscategorize it in Blasttober? And I'm like, ah. I was a little nervous. Yeah. Just hang in there. Hang in there, buddy. I believe I said, if this isn't a scary movie, it's your ass because we put it in Blastover. <laughs> but no, it did turn into a horror movie eventually. It just yeah. took its time getting there. But I was fine with it. So next week's movie does not take its time becoming a horror movie. I know you've already started your watch of it. It is a favorite of mine. One of these movies that I feel like is really becoming a cult classic in its own right. I discovered it through a critic I name dropped who didn't like Last Night in Soho, a Mr. Adam Naiman, who championed this film far and wide. It's The Empty Man. Yes. Starring our homie James Badge Dale from The Kitchen. He's back. He's got a little more to do in this movie. A little more yeah. filled uh, character. Not, I mean, not a ton more filled out. It's kind of a real straight ahead kind of thing so far. I don't want to say too much about this movie because I've only seen half of it. It's a long one too. We're not fucking scrimping on the run times for Blastover. We're doing some long movies this year. I think it's over two hours, isn't it? I don't know, but it's... I'm in it for the end. This one's more scary. The first watch on real scary movies can be harrowing for me. I knew what I was in for the last two weeks with movies I'd already seen. This time I got my hand in front of my face again because I'm scared a lot of the time. It's hard to take notes with your hand in front of your face. It is. Thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the pod. Write us a review if you can. We appreciate it. It helps people find us. Thank you. And you can follow us on Twitter at BlastZonePod. Shoot us an email, BlastZonePod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, suggestions, just want to talk, Say we hi. appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time in the Blast Zone. See you next time in the Blast Zone. The Blast Zone. This is a tale of horror.